Hello, Spacers. I'm Christopher Schmidt, and today we are wrapping up 2015. So it makes sense that we're presenting a rep panel, specifically the rep panel from CSS DevConf 2015 aboard the Queen Mary. For those who have not attended a CSS DevConf before, CSS DevConf's rep panels are a little different than most panels. Uh, most conferences, a panel usually has two or four people, maybe six if things are going crazy. The wrap-up panel at CSSDevConf goes beyond crazy, if you will, like ludicrous. Uh, CSSDevConf is where we ask all the speakers to the stage for a Q&A for a conversation with the audience. And there are over 20 awesome speakers on the stage at one time. That's ludicrous awesome. And because we have all these great speakers with different backgrounds and a talented and smart audience, the Q&A conversation covers a lot of ground tools, browsers, CSS specs, development, polyfills, state of, the state of the industry, and much more. So if you love the show, not breaking space, you'll definitely love this episode. Uh, some notes before we start. Uh, be sure to follow CSS DevConf on Twitter uh, for early birthday sales for 2016. Uh, the Twitter handle is CSS DevConf. C-S-S-D-E-F-C-O-N-F. I'll be hosting a virtual conference on January 21st about SVGs. It's a great day loaded with great topics and speakers about learning how to get SVGs into your design and development workflow. So check more check more out at svgsummit.com. Keep an eye out for JS Summit. Uh, it's going to be happening February 23rd to 25th. Uh, I'll find more information about it uh, next episode. If you have any trouble um, with the links I just discussed or discussed on the show, be sure to check out our show notes, including all the speaker information at goodstuff.fm and thank you for liking and subscribing the show Nonbreaking Space on iTunes through nonbreakingspace.tv Now, on with the show. question um, about animations. It was kind of related to Val's talk, but I didn't have a chance to ask it when she was talking. Um, you spoke about uh, maintaining velocity when you're running animations. How do you manage that when you don't know what the height of your elements might be? Yeah, that, that's Oh, yeah, that's pretty tough. You sort of have to... I mean, the best way to do it logically anyways would be to figure out how big it is and then kind of adjust for that, but it's pretty difficult. Um, a lot of the time, I think people just don't bother to animate that if it's if the, if the heights are very varied. Um, or if you have some patterns to it, like you kind of have a small and a medium and a tall, you can make some adjustments that way. But it is a really tough one to keep even because you can have such a variable amount of content. Um, and you kind of, you sort of, you never really know a lot of the time how much is going to be in there. So it's a tough one. Um, that's logically the best way to figure it out. And sometimes it's, you just, maybe that's not the place to use it if, they're, if they vary a lot. Yeah. Let me just add to that. Um, she knows how to do design and it'll look good. Um, but my suggestion is to actually look at the different um, length units. So instead of just using pixels, to use percentages or viewport height, so VH, something like that. It might not work because I never tried it. But it might help. But, but it might. Um, I, I guess this isn't for anybody really in particular, but we've heard a lot about the modular web emerging at this conference. And I'm wondering, because it is emerging, what skill sets or what tools are we sort of missing as a group um, that we're going to have to develop in order to be able to develop 
the web in this new modular way. And what, you know, we've talked a lot about SMACs and BEM and things like that that are sort of philosophies for preparing us for this or bridging our way to that. But what other skills could we be missing that we need to have in order to be developing in five years, say? So I'm going to jump in on this one. Um, so I think one of the problems right now is, is that we kind of built things in isolation. Uh, we, we learned about the separation of concerns, right? HTML over here, JavaScript over here, and CSS over here. Um, and from a CSS perspective, it's actually rather difficult to um, separate in such a way because it is so intrinsically tied to the HTML. And so when we look at how to build projects, um, the kind of tooling involved uh, is going to need to know not just the CSS, but is also going to need to know what the JavaScript is doing and also need to know what the HTML is doing uh, in order to be able to create optimizations across your entire project. And, and so I think that what we're going to eventually see uh, in the years to come are tools that do a better job of understanding the entire project as opposed to trying to just optimize one individual piece in the entire uh, technology chain. So we just walked back from a great talk on fostering an open source culture at work. And I think we come to these tech conferences and we look for a tool that's going to solve our problem, right? We start writing our CSS in, in JavaScript or whatever we're going to do. But it really starts to become more of a people and processes problem. And I think as, as developers, we need to get better at bringing people together and fostering those conversations rather than just kind of going off into the corner and doing it. Like I love Gina's point yesterday that at Salesforce, they were doing open office hours to help people fix this stuff, right? You're, you're fostering communication within your organization. And I think that's the next step. I was going to say the same thing. Human-to-human um, -human communication is very important. Um, ditto. So talk to people. I'll just make a quick point. Um, my name's Charlie, by the way, if we haven't met yet. And uh, what I'd say is there's a real temptation, and I fall into this myself, of saying, oh, here's this hot new framework. I really need to learn this. I need to stay up to date with React or Angular or whatever it is. And um, what I, th I think it's important to be aware of those frameworks and to use them in your projects and to uh, enjoy them when it, when it expands your awareness of how things work. Um, but that it's even more important to be aware of how code works primitively before you, before you layer on the frameworks. So if you have a limited amount of time, and I know we all do, uh, I would encourage you to understand how JavaScript works on its own. So code up a, code up a project uh, with no, without even jQuery, just from, uh, from the ground up. Um, and uh, yeah, just don't into the trap of feeling like if you don't know exactly what the new framework is, you're falling behind. Make sure that you know what's going on underneath the uh, underneath everything. I just wanted to add to that to um, go seek one out because of a problem you encountered. I think sometimes you need to see what the mess is before like seeking the the clean framework that solves your problem than knowing the the motivation behind maybe why someone else built it. So um, you know if anyone else started writing jQuery five years ago, like you probably wrote a big spaghetti app. And, and now, now you're grateful that there are front-end frameworks to, to deal with that. So yeah, don't necessarily seek these tools out just because everyone else is using it. Do it when it solves a problem for you. Great. So uh, what emerging technology that's not available in browsers right now are you most excited for? 
have the microphone, so I'm going to say the Web Animations API. Um, it's it's starting. Chrome is starting to implement it, but it's all the benefits of CSS animations, where you um, you know you get nice buttery things that are leveraging the GPU, but in JavaScript, so you have control over start and end events and just doing a lot of stuff at once a lot better. It's still a really young spec, but I think it's going to help us standardize on a lot of things when it comes to animations. Uh, for me, it's definitely web components. I mean, everything I saw from that talk is basically, I can take my entire um, uh, architecture I'm doing right now, which is very contrived and is very, like, um, you know, there's certain ways you have to do things to make it work this special way then I can get that into web components and it's just going to work exactly like it should. Um, I really think that's going to change the way I build pretty much every single project. Um, but it also changes it in a way that's extremely natural for the pro progression that we're already going and making small pieces, making small testable pieces, making very isolated components that are composable together, um, templatized and then put back together into larger pages is exactly what I think a lot of us are doing with our um, design systems and our frameworks. And Web Components gives us the tools to do that so way more than any other CSS little tidbit. It's going to really blow the doors off it, I think. I want to go back and rewrite the whole thing just tomorrow. Um, I did the talk on accessibility, so I would say uh, the role mappings um, for uh, like the navigation and things like that implemented in Internet Explorer and Safari so, so that we don't have to add those anymore. I have a blog post called Every Browser's the New IE. Um, here we go. <laughs> uh, position sticky, for the love of God. It, image lazy load, where are you? Pointer events, I'm looking at you, Safari. CSS font loading, service worker, installable web apps, and web components. And also, um, more parallel downloading for, yes, woo! I may as well say element queries. Oh, we're all whispering HTTP2 up here. I just wanted to make sure you all knew that. <laughs> uh, so I think we can all agree that polyfilling has been pretty cool for JavaScript. And polyfilling for CSS is notoriously really hard. I have a, a really long article that I've been trying to write, and it's, I don't know exactly how to write it, because it's just such a hard thing to describe, how hard it is to polyfill CSS in the browser. And um, there's some specs, there's a Houdini working group that's um, discussing how to make this easier for the future. And I think once we can polyfill CSS the same way we can currently polyfill JavaScript, we'll see a much greater um, adoption of new features, um, because we won't have to wait for, you know, a spec lifetime to finish and get implemented in all browsers, you can do it at the polyfill level. So. I guess on that note, uh, the, the CSS uh, object model is something that we would want, because that maybe that would help uh, polyfill better, but I don't know if the performance issues are there. I know this wasn't the question, but there are also many design tools that are getting really really great improvements, especially some of the Creative Cloud tools that are coming out in 2016. It's going to make a lot of what we do um, easier to create more modular pieces within the design and how libraries now works. Uh, if you haven't used Creative Cloud libraries and being able to create smart objects that are linked and you can edit them so you have them in one place 
instead of having them in 30 different files throughout your design. So, How happy or unhappy you all are in terms of the process of CSS, the feature CSS specs be, be heard and listened to by browser vendors of being actually implemented? And, and if not, what improvements would you recommend towards it being easier for developers having their voices heard in the process of them being implemented? I kind of just get depressed when I, <laughs> when I think things might not be moving fast enough. But when I look back, it's amazing where we come. And I know that there's a reason why some things roll out so slowly. Um, but that's, that's where I stand. I appreciate the talks I've seen at other conferences where like Leah Veru will be like, hey, everybody, please ask for this. This is how you do it, because I had no idea how to approach something like that. So I say more, more of us, let's do that. I, I, I have no idea if you know, anyone has the power to change this, but I think there's a big barrier when you're dealing with like the spec groups and stuff. Like They use really old mailing lists and stuff for their discussion, and if they could upgrade the technology that they use. I think to, more people might be encouraged to get involved. Um, I've had my share of um, working on the cutting edge, especially when it comes to CSS, uh, CSS stuff, like CSS shapes and stuff like that. Um, what I have learned is that we do have the power to change. Um, one of the things that has pushed CSS shapes to be implemented more in more browsers was some of the blog posts that, blog posts that I wrote. And I'm not saying this to brag. I'm just saying that we do have the power to change. Um, if you don't want to sign up to mailing lists and stuff like that, spec editors, uh, a lot of them are on Twitter, a lot of them listen. Uh, developers uh, working for different browser vendors, they also listen a lot. Um, a, a talk that I gave recently about, uh, I'm also going to answer the previous question um, at the same time here, where what kind of stuff I'm, I'm personally excited about. I'm excited about everything that we've been missing and that's coming. It's coming a little slow, but we have to push it forward. Everything that's gonna make our work with SVG, for example, easier. Um, SVG is very important today, we're using it more, but we're missing a lot of features that makes our work with it you know, more practical and more productive. But those are coming, and they're coming only, they come only if we push for them. If there is a practical use case for anything, any idea that you have in mind, suggest it. Uh, spec editors really do listen, and if you have a practical use case, a lot of the stuff that you request can end up being implemented. Uh, so I'm really excited about the future of CSS plus SVG, uh, the stuff that's being imported from SVG to CSS, such as motion along a path. I'm hopeful we're going to probably going to be able to also animate SVG paths in CSS. Um, a lot of um, some of the things that I mentioned uh, that Tab Atkins has been working on, like CSS parameters and other stuff, that's, uh, that's going to help us uh, work well, control SVGs more and work with them better. So to answer your question, implementations are a little slow, but it's us that can push them forward. Uh, browser vendors do listen, developers, uh, evangelists, they all listen, and all we have to do is just speak out. If you have a use case, write about it, uh, blog, tweet, just be, go out there and talk about it. That helps a lot, more than you can imagine. On the other end, which is sometimes I want a feature and I don't realize it actually exists, so talking to the people who are browser vendors and writing the specs, they can come up with like, really awesome solutions. So just you know, create a code pen, say this is what you want to do, post it to Twitter, post it to the CSS working group IRC, and you'll get feedback on like 16 different ways to make it so much better. So I, uh, I heard a rumor that there's actually somebody from one of the browser devs here at the conference listening to the stuff that we're talking about. And 
you know, they are listening. They, they want to hear the kind of stuff that we're doing uh, so that they can solve the problems. This is also the reason polyfills are so important. A lot of the time you can have a polyfill implemented when the spec has been proposed and you have people testing out that polyfill uh, just to see how it feels in development, if it's solving their problems. Uh, things like PostCSS or uh, SAS allow you to do stuff um, that would eventually you know, mirror the spec in some way. And you can do this with JavaScript as well, and this is why Babel is so important for ES uh, 2015. It's allowing us to get used to uh, things that browsers actually can't do yet, right? And eventually they will be able to do, but uh, giving us it, the exposure to those technologies gives us the opportunity to kind of put them through their paces, see how well we can, uh, we can actually work with this code with each other. Uh, the communication piece of this is so important because you know, the actual technology is important, yes, but figuring out whether or not that spec is going to work, that's the piece that's, so, that's probably the most important uh, to the people who are creating this stuff. So, so I actually have uh, a question for the panel here. Uh, I'm going to reference uh, quickly the article that uh, Peter Paul Koch wrote maybe a couple months ago um, entitled Stopping, Stop Pushing the Web Forward. Uh, and he was saying essentially programming too many features too fast and he wanted uh, maybe like a one-year moratorium. Um, what does anyone have to say about that? Boo. <laughs> <laughs> I, would, I mean, I'd echo what Sarah said. Like, there's a lot of things that we need to really use the stuff that we have and we're so close to having it. If we actually stopped working on this stuff, that would be so sad. Like, come on. Um, but and it, it is amazing how much, it, like um, the things that you use. If you talk about what you want and what you're using, how effective that can be in getting stuff like changed and put through. I think things are just happening faster and changing faster now. And if we actually stopped and didn't keep up, then like, I don't know, what would happen to the internet? It would suck. <laughs> yeah, I think um, I think the the point that's like kind of interesting about the article and something that should be considered it was kind of brought up before about tooling and. Um, sometimes things are overly engineered and sometimes we make things a little bit too complicated and simple solutions can actually be really elegant and amazing. Um, so I, I do like the idea of kind of looking backwards and cleaning things up and like being code janitors. But I, I don't think that that means you have to stop innovating at the same time. I don't think that those things are mutually exclusive. I think just the web is a really incredible platform with a lot of potential. And you know it can reach greater audiences in parts of the world that you know don't have iPhones at the ready. And you know if we continue innovating in the web to make it on par with you know native apps and stuff, and there's just so much that we can do to, like I say, bring the web to everybody. So why wouldn't you keep pushing that forward and making it more available and accessible to more of the world? So I've got a question. Uh, whoever wants to can answer it. Um, so last year, or I guess about a year and a half, two years ago, Angular was like the big thing for web apps. And they did the update, and everybody was like, Ugh, don't know if I want to touch that now. Um, React has kind of come up. Is that what you see as being the next big thing, or should we kind of hold off for web components? Like, I know it's not really apples to apples, but it's kind of, you know, goes together. Like, what do you guys say? Yeah, you should stop all web development. And <laughs> <laughs> 
wait until the technology has settled before we move forward. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I, I actually joked in the past on, on tw uh, Twitter that I think we, as developers, have to feel comfortable with refactoring. Uh, I would say almost on a yearly basis, um, but just like things are going to change. We're going to find better ways of doing it. And the way we code today is going to be different than the way we code next year is going to be different than the way we code two years from now. We can't stop. So, um, first of all, this is a CSS conference, not a JavaScript conference, no. Um, but um, I think one of the issues with Angular is, like, the only times I ever saw sites that I knew were Angular was because they didn't implement it correctly. So there were tons of sites using Angular, but the only ones that I noticed were because they put the wrong pattern attribute in and you couldn't fill out the form because it said phone number and the thing was five digits. And it's like, okay, in the United States we don't have five digits. My, so why am I using that as an example? Because I think what one of the issues is that there's so many tools out there that develop, and there's so much new technology. I'm not saying stop the new technology, but learn the technologies instead of all the tools. Learn what the tools are actually doing, and that's why I clapped when he said, you know, use vanilla JavaScript. Use vanilla CSS. Understand what an animation does before you do an extend on an animation, or I don't actually use SAS in that way, so I don't know what the words are. Um, but you know, yeah. Oh, it is? Okay. Um, I use SAS to modulize my CSS, but I, don't, I use it as a tool and not a crutch. And so with all of these tools, like with React, you can put all of your CSS in line, I guess, because I heard there was a talk on that. Um, but that's, that doesn't use the power of the cascade. And people are saying, uh, you know, CSS is dead. We should be using inline CSS. The main, if, you're, if CSS is too much of a behemoth for you to maintain, how can you maintain your CSS if it's one line here, one line there through 412 um, NPM installs? You know what I mean? Like it's learn how to code. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what we're all here for. Um, and I have to say, I've met some brilliant people here, and you guys know so much, and I'm so glad to be here with all of you. I'd also say it's, it's contextual um, in making these kinds of decisions. You have a certain amount of resource, certain amount of time, all limited, and you know, ask yourself these questions. What context am I in? Am I using Ruby on Rails? That's an opinionated platform. What's a good match for that? How much time do I have? How much risk am I willing to take in doing that? And, and really just, just fit it to the context of where you are and, and have fun with it, innovate, but Take your best guess and, and keep your ears open. But I'd I just say it's, it's, not, it's not one answer for one person. I think everybody here could have just, everybody here has a different job in a different context. And make, make your decision from that as well. Just one last thing to add on all that is when you're looking at technologies, it kind of just depends, depends, as Eric was saying, with context. It um, had a coworker that wrote a a post that basically described him using Pattern Lab on a project being overkill and described it as bringing a chainsaw when he needed a butter knife. And it was just a great way of like, this was too much for what he needed for that context. So keep those in mind when choosing technologies.
Yeah, one last thing I'll say about that. I think it is really important to kind of um, innovate and move forward and try new technologies, especially if you're like trying them out in a safe environment away from your build process and then deciding if it works well. I think that that time is really well spent, especially because if you take, it's a lot easier to implement a framework than to pull it out of your code base. So just taking the time to learn the tool before like throwing yourself full wholeheartedly into it and making that kind of dependency on your, you know, dev environment, I think is good learning time and, and helpful. I already spoke, so I apologize, but um, someone here mentioned Refactor Fridays, and I think that's like a brilliant idea. I don't remember who it was, I'm sorry I'm not giving credit where credit is due, but set your time, like set some time, and this is the hardest thing to convince your PMs to, to allow you to do and everyone above you, but set time so that when you use like a framework or import 16 frameworks, like it gives you an opportunity to clean up your code and to get rid of your dependencies that you're no longer using. Hello? Hello. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we, we have a mic system at work and nobody holds it close to their mouth, which is why I get closer. Anyway, um, so over the past five or, so, five or so years, there's been a lot of change of definition of what a front-end developer or engineer, even the fact that we're using the words developer or engineer. Um, and, uh, you know, there's my take of it, there's like your art-based people, which is sort of, I would say, most of the crowd here, and then there's like your computer science people. And I guess I'm, there's an event, uh, or rather a list apart talk on like what is front-end coming up, a webinar or something um, that I'm registered to, to see. So I'm kind of curious to in light of all that, what do you as the panel see the definition or the role of front-end development? Is, that, is it going to continually evolve? Is it going to converge, you know, where, because it seems like, you know, front-end, uh, uh, web designers became product designers, product designers became front-end uh, engineers, and front-end engineers are now like full stack. So I'm kind of curious to see where you guys think, what skills we all need to learn in the next few years. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, so I'm actually going to be on that panel next week, so I'll try to hold some of my opinions so I don't spoil too much. <laughs> but, yeah, but I have to say, like, um, you know, earlier in my career, I was calling myself a front-end developer um, as well as a designer, and I have to be honest, I don't really use that term as much anymore because when you look at a job description these days for front-end developer, there's a lot of stuff on there that I have no idea how to work with. Um, so I'll, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Sorry, just a quick follow-up. That's sort of my point. Like, I'm very gainfully employed right now, but, uh, you know, I worry about, like, the future. You know, is, is, is you know, do I need to know, like, SQL and controllers to do this anymore because it's based on the job descriptions a lot of them say we do I, I am a like graphic design background into web designer into then a purely development front-end role and then back now in a like mixed role um, so what I what frustrated me on both ends and I think what this goes to one of our other um, questions before too was that I think we're doing less of the throwing over the wall of like the designers do everything in a box and throw it over to the front end developers who then throw it over to the back end developers. And the more that we work together in the way like you said in your talk, when everybody collaborates, that's when things get exciting. So I think that's why the roles are blending in a lot of ways when these old companies 
and corporations where developers are in Seattle and designers are in New York, like how do they start to work together like that? And I think every company is going to be a little different in how I hope that we're all going towards that direction and it feels like it, how we can merge and blend those roles so we're all working more collaboratively. I cannot stand job titles. I think they're completely arbitrary. I mean, you learn what you think you love to do and you will find a job that that's where you fit. Um, I am currently a senior UX designer. I, you know, I learned print design, then web design, and then front-end development, and I've been kind of bouncing back and forth. I would term that as a web designer, because I think web designers should know code. But it's uh, the job title thing and the job descriptions that you see are often written by HR people who have no idea the difference between Java and JavaScript. So just learn what you really want to do and what you want to learn, and there'll be a job for you. And don't be afraid to apply for a job if there are seven things listed that you don't have any idea about. This is them wanting an ideal person that probably doesn't exist. So I think uh, you'll be surprised that when you actually interview with the person that's in your division that they have no idea what's even on that list. I don't want to have a job title. Anybody like remember like Netscape 1.0 and at the bottom of the screen you'd have uh, Webmaster. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that was like all sweeping term, that person that, that did everything with that website. And, um, um, give a shout out to um, uh, Dave Hogue. He works at uh, uh, Google. He does this great presentation called It Takes a Team. It's about um, UX design and how um, I, I, I've been trying to migrate a lot towards UX. And in doing so, I found just how incredibly it's a universe. Uh, UX is it's print design, it's it's cognitive psychology, it's um, marketing, it's it's a, a thousand topics. So, job titles just don't do what you do justice, because there is so much incredible flux every day to what we do. I mean, for I mean, it should be almost like the job description should be the job job title. Uh, I mean, I I I go by the higher geek because I, I reject all other titles, so there we go. So I, I did want to touch a little bit on job descriptions. So when you see a job description, like there's one time I saw a job description when jQuery was like four years old and it said five years ex job jQuery experience, which meant John Resnick could not apply. So view it as a guideline, but also view it as an inside view into what the company's about. So if they actually want you to have 17 years of React experience and, an, uh, and a master's in computer science to do their UX, then you probably don't want to work there. Um, but don't be scared because you don't have the nine years experience that they want, that they're asking for. Because, you know, like if this job sounds good, apply. They can always say no, but they won't say yes if you don't try. I would say, to add to that, I would say focus on, I think, like, regardless of where we're focused, I think we're all problem solvers at heart. Um, you know, focus on being a good problem solver and being a decent human because those are harder to teach than any framework or, like, language on that bullet list. And if you show passion and enthusiasm for wanting to learn and the stuff that you do know already, any good employer is going to allow you to learn those new skills on the job.
sorry, one more time for my ladies in the audience. It's like there's been a lot of research on women applying for jobs and men applying for jobs. And if you have a list of 10 things, a woman will see, oh, I can't do four of the 10. I better, I'm not qualified. And a man will be like, ah, I got six, let's go. So please <laughs> just keep that in mind. And like, I think that we, as a uh, gender, should really push forward because our counterparts are. It's just something that I saw on Twitter a while back. Uh, there was uh, this job opening at Microsoft, and someone uh, among the people who were telling other people about the job, she said, don't look at those skills that are listed there. They are just a wish list. They're not real requirements. If you have some of those skills, apply. Don't let all that really long list. They're not real requirements. They're just a wish list of whoever has that job opening. So don't let that keep you from applying. <laughs> All right, we'll, we'll pass it over there. I just want to say, it is so, um, it is so important, uh, it is so valuable, I'll, I'll put it that way, it's so valuable if you can blog regularly. Uh, as someone who considered people who were applying for positions, if you, have a, if you have a blog and you can comment on what you're working on, the projects you're doing, it is so helpful to know, here's someone who understands what they're talking about, is passionate about, about whatever this topic is, is learning more stuff and wants to share it with other people. And um, I'm terrible at blogging myself, so um, if you can do it, uh, if you can make yourself do it, more power to you. But um, I would really encourage you to think about doing that, especially if you are looking for a new position, um, or even if, even if, yeah, just across the board, recommend it. <laughs> Sorry, Dave. No. <laughs> I can't hear it. I have the microphone. It's louder than your sound effects. Um, but no, a real point. I've been, I've, I, in a past life, I used to work for agencies, and I've totally been in the room where, like, you are pressured by the people that own the company and the HR people to write this job description that is honestly, like, half BS. And then I, you're the person that's hiring, and that's not the stuff I'm actually looking for. Like, I was looking for someone, like Brenna's talking about, that can solve problems and can look for stuff. But the people that write the job descriptions were not me, and so I had to post their job description that was just like this list of nonsense that didn't actually apply. So, yeah, I've been I've been that person. I'm sorry. And um, <laughs> <laughs> how's it going, Dave? Continue. There you go. Great. Um, Right. My, I was totally going to do the webmaster thing and he stole it, so I have to jump to plan B. Um, I think that one of the big differences is talking about job descriptions versus talking about disciplines. Um, when we started, there was webmaster. That's all you had. That's all you could be. And as years went by, we started breaking up into different sections, your front, your back, and then breaking up even further. And as I think, especially front end, Sure, like front end, we, we fought for a long time to get front end as a title at our company, like to acknowledge we're front end developers. That took a while. So as we continue to grow and kind of grow what front end actually is, it, it keeps on growing. Where we now have front end ops, we now have front end architecture, we now have front end design, we have front end UX. Like we're going to continue to to grow the amount of disciplines that it takes to to do front end because it's going to continue to get more and more sophisticated. The tools are going to get better, and and the people that we need are going to continue to be more diverse as we continue to go. So find those niches. Find those jobs so you can do those things and continue to learn those skills that make you unique. Um, so at my company... I mean, you're next. officially it's still on this side. I promise you're next. 
So to tag onto that, something that I've been advocating for, you know, I think we are kind of, the people that are in this room are like the top 1% in terms of building UIs, writing great UI code, but I think when we go back to our companies, you're probably surrounded by a lot of people that front end means you do logic in the browser, right? They really are back end developers and the code just happens to get executed on the client side. So we've been big advocates. I come from the design side. I mean, I'm in our user experience practice, and I'm a big advocate for at least having someone whose role on a project is polishing the interface, right? Um, and being really focused on, you know, watching Val's talk earlier today where she's talking about all these crazy animations and all this stuff, that can take as long as building the feature itself or the functionality itself, just getting the interface code working well. And so if you have someone that's focused on that, someone that's focused on the business logic, you're kind of separating out those concerns, kind of getting back to, to the point that Micah was making. So. <sighs> That's all the time we have. Yeah, that's all the time we have. Uh, I was just gonna say, just real quick, I like I wouldn't worry about too much about what you need to know and what your job title needs to be going forward because we will all be replaced by robots by 2022. So that's all. <laughs> all I want to say, y'all. It was like six seconds. It could have been a vine that was underwhelming. Should have just vine my answer. Uh, I just, so, I mean, a lot of you folks are up here because you write, write great articles and we know who you are and we're kind of, you know, fan geeking a little bit when we're, you know, meeting the keynote speakers like face to face on opening night and things like that. I'm just like, every time I have an issue or I, I learn something new, like, I always feel like someone knows it before me or someone figured it out. And I, like, I want to contribute to the CSS community and I want to do, you know, a better job of that. I want to write a blog, but like, I don't know where I find inspiration or where I find new problems or where I find how to grow the community in a way that hasn't been done already. I'm just wondering what you guys think about that. I was, I was just going to say, find inspiration in your hate. <laughs> so first off, I would say not everybody is up here just because you've written a list of part article. I tweeted on Friday, I was like, oh my gosh, I, I quoted Dave Rupert in my talk and he's the keynote speaker today. And so I was like, whoa, that's crazy that I'm gonna be speaking with him. But I would say, again, don't think that just because you haven't written in a list of part article, you're not qualified to go back home and help the people around you get better. You start taking those ideas back to the people at your company and all of a sudden you are the expert in, the, in your community and your circle and the people around you. I would say just because someone's done it before doesn't necessarily mean you don't have something to add to the conversation. I had this problem a lot where I felt like everything that I have learned has already been like said and the thing is that you're, you might reach someone that someone else hasn't already reached. Like just because you think it's new to you, it's, it's, it's old school to you doesn't necessarily mean that someone listening to you won't get something out of it. So I would say don't be afraid to add your voice because you may reach a person that would, otherwise would not have heard it. I'm actually going to add to that. Um, I think it's very important, you know, and I discussed this with a, a few people um, uh, even yesterday and I think this morning. Um, and again, as a follow-up, think about the new developers that are coming into this profession. You know, we have all these schools and, you know, whether it's, you know, you're in CS or um, some of these uh, boot camps and whatnot, there's a lot of stuff they're not covering. And, you know, they're going to start coming to these um, conferences. And guess what? I love performance. Um, how do I follow up someone like Steve Sowers? You know, I'm like, hello, you know, Ilya Gregor, 
Tim Catholic, etc. But I'm passionate enough about it that I want to discuss it with whoever wants to come around and listen to me speak and st st stutter um, when I get nervous. But um, I think it's very important that you basically just, you know, be passionate about it and, you know, the people will come, you know, and they'll feed off that passion. And, you know, when they walk away and they're remembering, like, oh man, Dr. Dalby said some stuff, I totally remember I'm going to go home and try to implement this. That's what makes me feel good anyways. Just the very first conference that I went to, um, Dave actually said a really good piece of advice. Uh, he just said, if you're having trouble blogging or sharing, just write about a specific problem you encountered and how you solved it. And that, that was probably like the best advice that I got as far as feeling willing to share something. I had started out writing blog posts that, you know, were tackling lofty ideas about, you know, architecting CSS and stuff, and that got really out of hand and rambly. And, you know, my most popular blog post, I think, is about styling the input type range. That gets the most hits. And all the answers were out there, but they were in Stack Overflow questions in different documents, and I just put it together. Like, it doesn't have to be totally original. Your presentation of it, your perspective on it is totally valuable to other people. And what Mina said about, you know, you might just, it might just find its way into someone else's hands that didn't have access to it otherwise. So don't be shy. And the, the more you do it, the more comfortable you'll feel. So just get started with anything you can share. A bunch of years ago, Paul Irish uh, tweeted out the phrase, publish what you learn. So you learn something, write about it uh, or, or open an issue about it or talk about it on your wherever on your blog submit an article uh, to one of the sites there's so many different websites to publish on so it's just, even if it's something that's already been written before just publish what you learn I, I actually wrote an entire article based on that one phrase uh, for smashing magazine a few years back uh, it's just a very similar idea to what they were talking about even if it's written before you learned it publish it and you never know it might even get picked up and go viral if it's got something really unique in it I don't have too much to add to everything that they said. I totally wholeheartedly agree with everything. But there's one thing that I do want to add is, it's sometimes all about style. It's sometimes all about the details. Um, if you look up, if you have a problem, you for example, uh, you're, you're trying to add, uh, I did that recently, I wanted to add a common thread to my Jekyll uh, blog. There are so many blog posts about that and none of them was enough for me to solve my problem. So I had to do a lot of digging. I haven't written a blog post about that yet because I didn't add any comments uh, in the end, but it's all about the details sometimes. You might end up mentioning something that, you know, it's exactly the same thing that someone somewhere has been looking for. It's also about the style, the way you write it. You can find the same topic written about by two different authors, but the, the way they write it is totally different and sometimes it just speaks to you. Um, how do you find inspiration? Um, it depends on what you want to write. If you are trying to solve a problem, if you have the solution, just write about it your own style. Um, if you happen to find the solution on Stack Overflow, what she said earlier, if it's on Stack Overflow, it's not somewhere else, write a blog post about it with more detail. Uh, give it more exposure, share it. Um, if there's anything that you want to read about that you cannot find a real good resource about, write it. Uh, this is how I personally do it. Like. Um, a couple of years ago, when I first started with SVG, my, the first blocking thing, the thing that was preventing me from really d diving into SVG was the Viewbox attribute. It's so simple, it's, but there was no, like zero resource about it that helped me really grok it. 
So I started experimenting myself. I created an, an, an interactive demo for myself to understand it. And I ended up with a solution that I knew would benefit a lot of other people. So I spent two weeks working on it. And now it's the go-to resource for a lot of people to learn about it. It's about your style, the details, and what you want to see. If you want to see something out there, if you cannot find it the way you want it, you put it out there your own way. Uh, I also want to add that I think sometimes you can get caught up in how do I write something that people are going to read, um, but there's a lot of good reason to write something that has nothing to do with whether people will read it or not, and I think you can overlook that. Um, sometimes writing about something makes you understand it in a way that you never would have otherwise, and so on some level it almost doesn't matter whether someone's going to read it or not. Yeah, I mean, just like Sarah, everything that people were saying before this was really great, but I would also like to add that um, Sometimes you come across a problem that's like you bang your head on your desk for seven hours about. I think that that stuff like really, really will help somebody else. There's somebody out there in the mire who encountered something that's like that. And you know, if there's like the personal growth that you get from writing, but there's also just like helping other people out in the community that like if you hit a really hard bug or a problem that that could actually like save someone else tons of time that you probably benefited from at another stage in your career, so yeah. So I think the question might not have just been about writing, but also about, because we're all up here speaking, and I said this at the panel last year and the year before, and the year before that they didn't have a panel, but I would have said it, which is the reason that we're up here speaking is because we applied to speak. So if you don't fill out a CFP, like if you don't write your proposal, you're never going to get to speak. So there, it's not like we were, the first time we spoke, no one asked us. We actually asked ourselves. So you have to do that, and don't feel shy. Um, anyone can do it, because I can do it. No, from practicality um, of, of blogging and just um, providing information, um, my biggest failure is, is my blog posts uh, turn into college dissertations and often don't get <laughs> published because I'm, I'm just overdoing it. I have a friend who, who said that, I mean, he, he's like blogged for 10 years and said that, the analytics, the shorter, the, the, the short and sweet ones, where it was like, oh crap, I learned something new today, here's how to fix it, just overwhelmingly got the most traffic over the ones that were just, you know, the, more of the, the, the prepared ones. So, I mean, it, it's kind of like you look on Stack Overflow, someone asks a question, and then they come back and they say, hey, I figured it out, here you go. I mean, that's, sometimes it can be really simple like that. Um, so this was my first time speaking. Uh, yeah, thanks. Um, so the reason that, I mean, I never sought out to be a speaker. It wasn't something that I ever envisioned myself doing. Um, but I saw a need in the community, and I saw sites going out that weren't accessible, like brand new sites being built. So um, it's not something that, you know, it's really just finding a need and kind of the, having the passion to fill it. One more thing about speaking, to submit to, uh, to talk, you need to write like a paragraph, not a whole talk. So you can totally submit on something that you're not an expert on yet and use it as an opportunity to learn about it. Honestly, if it's something you're interested in, submit a little paragraph of whatever ideas you have and, and then you have like a, a reason to, to learn it and become an expert. That is exactly what I did. <laughs> that is exactly what I did the first time I spoke. I, I, I was supposed to talk about something. I ended up 
getting very curious about SPGs, so I changed the talk topic two weeks before my talk. I spent those two, two weeks learning the stuff about SPG that I had been wanting to learn for a long time, and I ended up getting up on stage and talking. Um, I also like, there's something that I think that might help uh, some of you. Speaking is just like writing, at least to me. So uh, a lot of people turn, the, turn their talks into transcripts, which are basically just blog posts. So if you have a topic you want to write about, you can talk about it. If there's anything you want to spread awareness about, such as accessibility, get on stage and do it. Speaking is just like writing, except that you can get really sick um, to your stomach, want to throw up and get nervous and all of that stuff. But you, with this time, uh, it does not get easier, at least for me, uh, but you do get better at hiding it. <laughs> Just, um, just to prove the point, I, I said it without a microphone, but who here, who, who on stage has done that, has put, proposed a talk they didn't actually know how to do yet? So, yay. Okay. <laughs> just wanted to make sure it wasn't just me. <laughs> so there was um, a quote that I'm going to butcher, but it's basically, um, every artist in them has 100,000 bad drawings. As, as quickly as they can get through those 100,000 bad drawings, the better the world benefits. So basically, when you first start writing, when you first start presenting, you're going to be terrible about it. And the only way to get better is to be terrible about it. So don't be afraid that, well, I'm going to write this and it's going to be terrible. Um, yeah, it's going to be terrible. If I tried to draw something today, it's going to be terrible. And I'm trying to learn piano and I'm terrible at it. You just embrace that comfort or embrace that discomfort in it and um, start small. Don't go to like a huge presentation or a huge conference and be like, hey, I'm going to Go to a local user group, somewhere where they're more forgiving. The other thing is, don't make being a presenter your end goal. That's not why you want to present. You want to present because you want to spread information. Um, we're all up here, we're going to go home, and we're going to leave, like, this was fun, but it doesn't bring, um, it's not what gives my life its ultimate value. It's something that I do because I like it, um, but it's not, like, I don't want you to, to make that your goal of, if I become a speaker, it's going to solve everything. It's not, and that, it, it, it shouldn't. Um, you find a lot more uh, value elsewhere in your life, but this is a, a cool little thing, a cool little thing you get to do. I've wrote 100,000 bad apps. Yeah. <laughs> I'm on two, yeah. Um, so there's this underlying assumption that I think we all make as developers that's unless we achieve a certain amount of knowledge, we don't, we aren't qualifying as developers yet. And so the question that I would like to uh, propose to you guys is what do you suck at? Um, because like for me it's accessibility and it's testing. I like feel incredibly guilty for not knowing more about the best way to do those things. And I think this is a great opportunity for people that we respect and look up to to also show us that they are human, just like all of us, and that in all reality, none of us know everything, and we all suck at tons of things. So uh, the, uh, the old backhanded compliment, you guys are great, what do you suck at? <laughs> Question. Who wants the mic? I'm, I don't know anything. <laughs> I, this would actually tie into the blog post thing. I think it would be fun if we all posted, our, I call it the list of shame, like the thing you should know, but you totally don't. And uh, for me, that's totally like JS testing. It's just 
I don't know, I, I read tutorials and they're like, how to tell if a number is negative? And, and then they're like, cool, bye, I gotta go. Um, you'll, you'll figure out the rest of your whole entire application. And I just, I'm kind of like, hmm, that's not, oh, I don't know how to do this. So, uh, th there's so much. I, I didn't know you could do so much with SVG, text path, and all that stuff. And I, I, I cracked open a code pen this morning and made a little SVG text path thing. I, 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 I am, I learned at this conference, I don't know SVG at all. <laughs> and so now it's on my list of shame. I need to get better at it. But, um, I, I think, yeah, I think everyone should like just be totally transparent about their list of shame and yeah, I don't know that. I don't know anything about that. Um, so you mentioned accessibility. There's so many things about accessibility that I still don't know. Um, dealing with JavaScript and the DOM, like so much. Uh, as soon as JavaScript's involved, I pretty much am like, because I haven't gotten there yet. And it's a process. You know, I, you know, granted I spoke about accessibility, but I did it the getting started portion. So I'm still moving forward and, right. you know, learning more and just continuing. It, it's really about your passion and drive and powering through. Set, setting up my development environment, I push to production all the time. Because yeah. <laughs> I'm just, it's easier. Still, still mine. No, but uh, all the build tools and like how to do like properly engineered front end code, I have no idea how that works. Like, I basically, I've never set up any of my, I don't even know what, NPM, God knows whatever things myself. I've always brought it to someone else and bought them donuts and coffee and be like, please make my computer do this thing like it should. And then give me a list of the commands, what, what I write and when, when I want stuff to happen. And like all that stuff, I'm just like, I don't understand it. I just know how to use it. I don't know how to put it together. I don't even, maybe I don't know how to use it. Yeah, I guess I I guess like we're gonna all talk about something that's like a little bit outside of the direct discipline of what we're speaking about. I speak and talk about um, SVG animation, and I'm really into CSS animation and JavaScript animation. I try to do things in all sorts of ways, but I still don't know WebGL. So like even even in like the like really scoped like minute focus of the thing that we love, there's even like a glimmer of something that we don't know in that sometimes so so like like it's just a really big front-end world it's just a tons of things to learn and know instead of calling it a list of shame I'm just gonna call it a list of stuff that I want to learn um, um, I have git like there's all of the tutorials git is so simple just one two three I do one two three it never works <laughs> <laughs> WebGL and 3D animation has always been like, my brain is just like, no way. Um, there is testing, I need to, I know, I know basically like 0.01% of everything. Uh, profiling for performance is one of, on, on the top of my list. I need to do this, really. Um, yeah, that's basically most of it. And keeping up with stuff, seriously, I don't, who here is really good at keeping up with everything? Like ES6. <laughs> <laughs> that guy's awesome. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of new features, and I'm still going up on the ladder with JavaScript. It's I love JavaScript, but seriously, people are already talking about advanced ES6 stuff, and I'm like still, what? So we all have those. Uh, we only, like Sarah said, we only get on stage and talk about the stuff that we are strong, uh, that, you know, that are points of strength. But 
we really are like we suck at so many things we do we're just too embarrassed i think i just blushed i think my face is right right now <laughs> uh i applied to at least 15 conferences and got turned down this year so i'm not good at writing conference uh proposals <laughs> so it's a surprise that this is like number 16 i think so um no i i think that for all the things that we're bad at we're not 100% bad at them, right? Like we know enough to be able to learn it. Uh, one thing that I do all the time, I'll say that I'm going to structure my CSS documents in, in the cleanest way possible and I'm actually gonna stick to a particular you know, way of doing things. And then like five minutes later, I'm writing just random classes at the bottom of whatever file I can find to write it. it I mean, it's, it, I think it's for me and for probably for a lot of people, it's just the discipline, right, to stick to something. Um, and so actually sticking to something, you might actually hit that number 16 where you say, okay, at this, this proposal actually is, is good. And, and the thing that I sucked at, I no longer suck at, right? Awesome. Okay. Last response? I really suck at estimating time yeah. as far as how long it will take to complete something. <laughs> So I give a warning every time I submit some time and I say, please double or triple this if you want me to be in time, because it's usually pretty accurate then. Uh, I suck at JavaScript, pretty much everything but jQuery, so that's my hat of shame. As a designer with a graphic design background, I'm a terrible drawer. Like in our office, we have at lunch on Fridays, we have something called lunchtime draw time where everybody draws and the, the rule is that you can't ever erase and it gives me such anxiety. I like just kind of run away and go play on my computer. Okay. Uh, let's give a round of applause to our speakers.